You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. And welcome to the Coach's Corner. Uh, in this uh, segment, we like to give you some some real-life coaching, some ideas, some tools. We just had a wonderful study presented to us by Andrew Steptoe about uh, as we're aging, our happiness levels, right? And so as part of that, I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, retirement. A lot of couples end up retiring, and it's you know it should be a great, a wonderful, blessed event because now all of a sudden – You've got nothing but time to just you and your honey to just live together and be happy. The reality is many people haven't even talked to their spouse for years. And so now we're supposed to make this work. And one person may have been the kind of stay at home person and the other was out in the workforce. And now you're going to come home and inject yourself into their life at home. So four conversations that we need to worry about as we are uh, thinking about retirement and so if you're an empty nester, it's an interesting statistic about your your divorce rate at empty nesting stage. Apparently, the divorce rate goes up about 16% when you and your honey are left alone with no more kids in, uh, in, the, uh, in the nest. Is that crazy? 16% increase simply because now we've got to work at it, as Andrew was saying earlier. The hard thing about a relationship is they demand work, and many of us haven't been doing the work. And so here's four conversations that if you're thinking of retiring, I would sit down and I would have each of these conversations. Don't think you're going to retire, then have the conversation. I'd first have the conversation. The first conversation is what I call the resources conversation. That is about how you are going to live on a fixed wage. With one or both of you now retiring, it only makes sense that you're not going to be able to live at the same financial level that you were before. In this conversation, you should discuss the financial realities of your world. You should evaluate a bunch of different things, your health care benefits, where they're going to come from, how they're going to change, your Medicare, your Medicaid, Social Security, rainy day funds, insurance costs, your cost of living. Is it time to, sh- to get a smaller home? Are we going to stay in the home? Is the home paid off? What are going to be the future changes that need to be made in the home? Are we going to uh, need to put a new roof on the home? What's going on? But start discussing this. I'd get very clear about what your actual inflow of money will look like, and I would do that before you walk away from another company. You know what? You'd, You'd think like, well, no, duh, Matt. But that doesn't always happen. Do you know the inflow of what your money's gonna look like? What will your outgo look like? Are you going to have a rainy day fund to take care of that house? Is it time to get the house on the market? Before we need to be making some of these major changes um, and and the major you know breakdowns of certain uh, equipment in the home, what does our budget need to be in order to balance the inflow and the outgo? You got to figure that out. Part of the uh, resources conversation is what are the needs and the wants that we both have. Does one of us really want to travel a lot? You know, travel may cost. Do we have a budget for that? Are we going to buy a motorhome and become members of the Good Sam Club? <laughs> and travel all over the country, is that going to be an expense we need to pay attention to? What are some extra activities that are going to come up now that we have more time? Should we just continue working part-time? You know, information, very basic conversation. Think about it. Have you had the conversation? 
By the way, that's a great conversation to have, whether you're retiring or not, by the way. Every one of these are. Um, Another second conversation I'd be focusing on, after you've had the resources conversation, have the time conversation. You know, many times one of the biggest surprises is how much time you are actually going to be spending with each other. And a lot of people, when you first fell in love, that was great. Oh, my word. It's so exciting because we have nothing but time together. But you've kind of grown your own identity. You've grown your own hobbies. You've grown your own needs. You need to go figure out how much each other is going to need. How much space will your partner need every day? You've got to figure out what your time is versus their time versus our time. I would not retire and assume that we're just going to be together. I, I promise you, I've seen many a couple, once they're together, it, it goes south. Because now we now what? Now you're going to look at what I'm doing and you're going to start judging how I spend my morning. You're going to watch those shows all morning? Get out of your chair. When are you going to go work on the yard? You've got nothing but time. So your schedules are going to matter. What time do we go to bed now? You know, what time do we wake up? How much time alone do you need every day? What does a tentative schedule look like? I'd break down your schedule. What are the times that you might call sacred every day, inviolable, that you know your partner should not be messing with? There might be certain shows you love. There might be certain lunches you love to go have that your partner is not to mess with. So the time conversation. Another conversation I love is the distribution of work conversation. This, by the way, is one that you should have with your spouse today, regardless of whether you're retiring or not. We tend to not serve equally in the home. The research shows that while we are dating, women do a little bit more work than the men do. If they're, if they're cohabitating, for example, women do a little bit more work than the men do in the home. The interesting, sad research is once they marry, men do significantly less home work in the home than the woman does. Married people do not distribute the work evenly, especially if one partner works outside of the home. So you need to have a conversation. Are we going to, how are we going to distribute the work every day? You got to have clarity on this one because a lack of clarity is going to cause nothing more than pain. So how are we going to distribute the chores? We're going to discuss who's going to do what, who's inside the home, what are we going to do inside the home? Are we both going to work outside of the home? What happens with the automobiles, the family, the grandkids? You know, who's going to make dinner every night? Who cleans up the dinner? I would very specifically go through each part of this. And if we like doing it together, you know, you know, multiple hands make lighter work, right? So here's some questions you could ask. Who's responsible for what chores around the home? Who makes the dinner? Who cleans up? How many times should we eat out versus eating in? What is one activity that uh, you both have been doing for years that you want to quit? Talk about it. Who puts together the family parties? Whose responsibility should that be? Who sends out the birthday cards? Who pays the bills? Who does the grocery shopping? All different ideas about how we're going to distribute the work. So, so far, look at that. We've talked about how we're going to have our resources. Do we have enough? What will it look like? The time conversation, the distribution of work conversation, and last and certainly not least, probably the most important conversation you can have if you're about to retire. And Andrew Steptoe brought it up. It's the legacy conversation. The legacy conversation for me, critical. Okay, because this is going to now shore up that you're going to say, great, let's say we each have 15 to 20 more years in us as we're retiring. What do we want our legacy to be as a couple, as an individual as well? What are your goals? What are your dreams? What is your new purpose? 
It's an exciting stage. Where do you want to invest this time? What do you want people to say? At your funeral, what do you want that legacy to be? This is where we can really tie it up. This is where our passion should come out, as Andrew Steptoe was talking about. Um, This is where we start discussing what do we want our children to say about us, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. You've got the time now. Now we need to maybe strengthen some relationships. We need to start, you know, working on ourselves emotionally and spiritually and mentally, financially, physically. All of these are are resources we can be using. But what motivates you? That's a great question at this stage. Share it. What do you want people to say about you at your funeral? Talk about it. What do you consider your most important responsibilities and relationships at this stage? Boy, what happens if one of your kids has a real blow-up with their spouse or passes away, heaven forbid, and you get to raise the grandchildren? Is that your legacy? I'd throw these crazy questions in there because if you talk to people long enough, that's what all these couples are going through. Grandparents are picking up more today than they ever have. What is the purpose of your life? If I put a microphone in front of you and just said, hey, what is the purpose of your life? What would you say? What would your spouse say? Do you think you'd be on the same page? Because if we don't know the answer to that question, what are we doing? How do I know how to manage every one of my days if I don't know what the purpose of my life is? What is the lesson, one or two, maybe one of each of you, that you want to teach to the rest of the world? What do your grandkids need to know that only you could teach as a grandparent? And what lessons do you still need to learn? Basic questions about your legacy. By the way, these are just conversations, right? But my belief is it's a conversation that changes the game. That's why we do this show, because we want to change the conversations. So as we work on our resources, as we work on our time conversations, our distribution of work in the, in the marriage, and our legacy, every one of these conversations makes us stronger. And please listen to what your partner is saying. We've got to figure out what they want because one of the rules is uh, mutual benefit has to be there. We both have to be benefiting if we want a long-term relationship, right? So if this is about you controlling the resources and not letting your partner have any access to money, you're going to have problems. Or if the time, if you keep encroaching on their time or if you're not sharing the workload evenly, you're going to have issues, And we don't want issues because it's not going to make us happy. And according to our earlier research, we need to be happy in order to have longevity. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We're just different, right? We're all so different. I remember vividly, uh, I guess it was probably fourth grade. Is that when you learn times tables? Probably third grade. Third grade, yeah. Third grade. And uh, I remember our teacher would line us all up, two lines. I'll never forget this. And uh, I was, we were doing times tables, and she'd then have us pretty much compete head-to-head on the times table. <laughs> and, um, you know, she'd flip up the cards, and you'd have to hurry and say the number. You know, you know four times seven, 28. Three times four, 12. And you'd have to just throw them out there. Well, I, I wasn't the fastest at times tables. I just wasn't there. So if you lost, she would then point to have you get out of line and she'd say, okay, winners, get in line. And she'd use these words. 
and losers to the wall. (laughs) So the losers. So I got in my head when it comes to math that I'm a loser because, yeah, I was always on the wall. I was a loser. Now, let's do a spelling bee. Not to brag. I was pretty amazing. I was the big guy on campus. Uh, But thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. However, um, times tables, uh, I was always a loser on the wall. And so I got this idea in my head that I just don't do math. And I, I ended up then going to a private school because of my math probably. And um, anyway, went to high school, still struggling with math. And I was taking a math class from a teacher. I'll never forget her. Mrs. Larson, wonderful, wonderful woman. And she had actually taught all of my sisters. Everyone had learned what, – what we had all learned is that we don't do math very well. And I think I was in my second year of algebra, and she – I had just messed up on a test. She asked me to take the test uh, home, study it, and she was going to let me retake the test. And I was going to study it over the weekend. And I came – I was just came home. I was depressed. I didn't want to spend the entire weekend – on this stupid algebra, oh my heavens, that nobody's going to even use. Never going to use algebra. And my mom said to me, it was a magical moment. My mom said, what is your deal? I'm like, I hate math. And we're never going to need this stuff. And I'll never forget what she said. It was beautiful. She said, Matt, relax. We aren't math people. We, you're a Townsend. We don't do math. We struggle with it. We're not good at it. We're not math people. And right then I thought, oh, I'm not a math person. It's like she had diagnosed me. You've got Alzheimer's. Okay, that's my problem. No, but I'm a Townsend. We're not math people. So right then I decided, okay, I guess I don't have to do the math because I'm not a math person. And um, I went – I didn't study that weekend. And I took – I went into my class and she's like, Matt, are you ready to retake that test? And I looked at Mrs. Larson. I'll never forget this moment. I said, you know what? Um, I'm not going to take the test because I'm a Townsend and we don't do math. We're not math people. I'll never forget her look. She was looking over her glasses at me and she pushed them up with her finger and she said – I know. I've I've worked with all of your sisters. I know you guys struggle doing math. And then the moment of all moments, she stuck her chubby little finger right in my chest and she said, but this Townsend, right at me, this one's going to do math. And it ruined my entire day because <laughs> it was the first time I had learned that it's mine to do, that there is no disease of math. And just because you have a family that doesn't know how to do it, This teacher instilled in me that I have to learn to do it. It's my responsibility. It's mine to own. It's choice. And if we could teach that idea earlier with our children to be choosing to live their own life and lead their own education, then they will be a lifelong learner. That is, I think, the goal of personalized learning. And that's the Coach's Corner. More ideas, more tools to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier, happier life Stick with us, folks, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back.
you read The Alchemist Listen to your teachers But cheat in calculus Tell the truth Regardless of the consequence And every day Give your mama a compliment Take your girl to the prom But don't get too drunk Hanging out the limo Slow dance with Welcome back everybody To the Matt Townsend Show Little Macklemore and Ryan Lewis Teaching us about how to grow up who else could teach us how to grow up but our next guest? You know, it's it's an ever challenging endeavor, right? When you got to leave house, leave your house, and you know, take on your own bills, maybe pay your taxes for the first time. Growing up is a hard thing to do. And our next guest, Kelly Williams Brown, is the author of the book "Adulting: How to Become a Grown Up in 468 Easiest Steps." She joins us now live from Portland, Oregon. Kelly, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Well, thank you so much. Good morning. Good morning. Great to have you. And this is a a fun book, Adulting, How to Become a Grown-Up. Help us understand, why would you write a book on adulting? And and that word, is that even a real word? Well, uh, it wasn't a word until I I made it up, um, (laughs) much to the chagrin of my English teaching mother. Um, And it it came from sort of my habit of just making jokey words, making making verbs out of nouns, you know, like, oh, I'm really busy bridesmaiding this weekend. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, the, the reason that I made it, though, is that I found that so many people don't actually feel like they're an adult. Even maybe if they're in their forties, so, yeah, yeah. And for young people, you know, it, it that that line is getting blurry. You know, legally you're an adult at eighteen. You know, if you're going to school, then after you graduate, that's the first time you're really out and about on your own. So, you know, my argument is is maybe it's not something you are or aren't at any mm. you know one point in your life. Like now you're an adult, but rather it's the process of small grown up responsible decisions throughout your day. That's actually a great point um, because I I am pushing 47 and yet I I still don't feel like a grown-up. I don't feel like an adult except everybody in my family tells me to act like one. Do you know what well, I mean? I, I wouldn't want to get in the middle of that particular debate, but, <laughs> you know, one one thing – for the book uh, is uh, I, I was a newspaper reporter for seven years. And, you know, so part of me thought, well, I, you know, if I can go learn all about a bill moving through the Oregon State Senate and then explain it to someone who maybe has very little political background or understanding of how that process works in Oregon, then, hey, maybe I could also find people who are really good at keeping their houses clean or keeping their finances in order or who know what to say in social situations and interview them and sort of report on how you become an adult. But, you know, the funny thing would be I would call someone who I really admired and really thought of as an adult, you know, someone who ran a very successful business, maybe was in their 50s, had a beautiful family, uh, sort of pillar of the community types, and they would laugh and say, oh, gosh, well, I'm not an adult. I don't, I don't know why you'd want to interview me. So, you know, it seems like nobody ever really thinks that they're, yeah. that they're there yet. You're, you're in, you've found a universal truth, apparently, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, who knew? But, yeah, you but, nailed yeah, it. We, 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 you know, I think, well, what I really think it is, is that, you know, we're, we're always inside our own heads and whatever it is that we're not very good at, 
uh, you know, sort of in terms of life, we assign a very high priority to. You know, personally, it's I'm I'm a messy person and I work on it, but I'm, I'm never going to be Martha Stewart in the homemaking department. And and so I assume that that is what it means to an adult, be an adult. You know, an adult always has a spotless, perfectly company ready house, whereas <laughs> someone who you know needed a little bit more help maybe with their money or that really stressed them out to them that's the marker of adulthood so we're always we're always moving the target based on whatever it is that we're not quite as good at yeah is it um i mean i i feel i feel that uh that's that's actually a perfect explanation it's pretty much we assign the highest priority to the things we do the the least effectively and it's exactly. it's it really is it's because uh, i mean a lot of your 480 80 or 68-ish steps are are basically just funny things that no one would ever think about, right? What What's some of your favorites? Some of my favorites. That are um, kid-friendly you know, and, you know, Christian oh, radio-friendly. Of, of course. <laughs> um, you know, one of my favorite pieces of advice is from a dear family friend named Bonnie Trumbull, who lives up here in Oregon. And Bonnie was saying, you know, when when you're a young person and you're first out in the world, first out at that job or whatever it might be, sometimes you can feel really intimidated. You know, perhaps you've gotten an invitation to a fancy party or, you know, you're somewhere with important people and you're feeling like you shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. And she said, just always remember that you all arrived on the same guest list and that your invitation is just as valid as theirs. And, you know, you can apply that to a lot of situations. If you're, if you've gotten that job that you're really, sorry about that. Oh, no, you're good. That's her calling right now. It's your friend. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, if you've gotten that job that you're really excited about and you show up and all of your coworkers are just brilliant and you, you feel so nervous, well, remember that, you know, you arrived with the same invitation as them. They saw something in you that they want. Mm. Uh, another really good piece of advice is just go ahead and clean something up as soon as it spills. Uh, and you wouldn't think that that would be a piece of necessary advice for a 27-year-old. But, you know, one of my friends was saying that throughout her day, you know, I should She's brushing her teeth of, you know, maybe a little teeny bit of toothpaste splatters or whatever. She just goes ahead and tidies it up right then and there. And I was like, that's brilliant. I have to be 27 <laughs> before someone told me that. <laughs> you know, not that I would never wipe things up. Right. But, you know, sometimes you'd be like, oh, what? well, I'll clean it up when I clean the sink on, you know. It's Sunday so true. Whatever. But there really are just little things that make life easier. Exactly. And if you don't pick them up, somebody does. Is that what you did? Did you go around and ask everybody? Uh, Yes, that's exactly what I did. Um, You know, when I started with with people I knew, good family friends, um, you know, friends of my parents who I knew to be people who either were very at ease socially or, you know, really knew their way around, you know, the house in terms of being handy or – were, were wonderful hostesses or what were successful in their careers. And, but the great thing about this is that you can really ask almost anyone uh, because everyone has some part of adulthood that they're good at. So I, I, while I was writing this book and it did, it was a several years long process. I would just talk to people and I would ask, Oh, if there was something that you could go teach your 22 year old self, you know, not, not the big stuff in life, not the forgive yourself, 
you know, accept, you know, your parents for who they are, you know, warts and all that kind of thing. But like, no, here, here's how you change a tire and figure it out before you were standing on the side of the road uh, with a flat tire. And so then I, uh, I would, I would take that and run with it. Mm. And again, I think that's it's so it's so appropriate because there's a great quote by Carl Jung that says um, that which is most personal is most universal. And so a lot of your points are so personal. Um, there was a in the article that reviewed your book um, uh, from the New York Times that uh, there was a great quote, and I think it was attributed to you. That was it. it um, I just lost it. Uh, basically, it was talking about. You know, it's not freaking out about, um, oh, it's when you open up your drawer, your crisper, and you, (laughs) and it's, so what bothers you? I mean, it's not just the fight with a friend. That's, that's one thing, but it's that you, you open up your crisper drawer and a foul smell comes out because you, you thought you were going to go buy some kale and, and cook it and you never did. I'm always so optimistic when I'm in the produce section about (laughs) how many, you know, kind of quickly perishable veggies I will be cooking and eating before they go bad in, you know, a week. Um, Yeah. And and it's, you know, we can really take all those things as signs and rather than thinking, okay, next time I really need to either be more reasonable about how much kale I'm buying or... (laughs) Barring that, I need to just give it a check every day or so and make sure it's not turning into that. I don't know if you've ever gotten to this point in your refrigerator. I hope you haven't. But, you know, that kind of slurry. Oh, yeah. Of, oh, oh yeah. Inside, and it, it does not smell good. No. But, so, you know, but we, we don't do that. We don't just say, huh, here's a problem. What can I do to fix it? And how can I maybe prevent it from happening again? We fall into this, you know, oh my gosh, what is wrong with you? How could you let this happen? This is disgusting. No human has ever been as disgusting as you, blah, 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 blah. And then we haven't really solved anything. We've just really upset ourselves yeah, further. Right. And, and our kitchen still smells terrible. <laughs> and yet, and yet, next time you're at the store, if you've, if you've right. adulted and you're now an adult, then you wouldn't buy kale again unless you're really going to cook it. But Exactly. I still may exactly. take two or three more times creating you know, the slurry. And, and, and that's the thing is that, you know, we are never going to be perfect. You know, there's we're, probably in some elements of our life, you know, maybe we were pretty good at them to begin with. Maybe it was something our parents really emphasized. And and so it's, it's just not as much of a problem for us. But I think no matter who you are, there's going to be elements of life that, are not second nature and that you do have to work on and and that's okay. You know, as long as you just acknowledge that you have to work on them and acknowledge that you're not always going to be perfect at them. And that's, I guess, part of the growing up is maybe, you know, giving up the perfection idea. Oh gosh. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, I, the quote that I love is, you know, don't let great be the enemy of good. Mm. And that's not to say that, you know, you should not strive for greatness, you know, but it also means that I think to be a healthy person, it's really important to acknowledge what you are good at and what you can do and focus on that. And then if you're up against 
a, a challenging situation rather than deciding off the bat that you will never be able to do this or you'll never be able to do that. Just thinking, no, I can, I can probably do this. Um, let's figure it out and let's have some patience with myself as I learn this. Yeah. Great advice uh, from, again, Kelly Williams-Brown. We'll take a break and come back, continue this discussion in just a couple minutes, figure out, um, you know, more great advice from Kelly and her book, "How uh, Adulting, How to Become a Grown-Up in 468 Easy-ish Steps. Also, you can go check out her website, kellywilliamsbrown.com. Just great insight um, that I think all of us could take into heart, right? Basic adulting. Very basic. We'll be right back, Kelly. Thanks. We'll take a break. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. We're on the line with uh, Kelly uh, W. Brown, author of the book Adulting, How to Become a Grown-Up in 468 Easy-ish Steps. You can also go to her website, kellywilliamsbrown.com, to find more of her writings there as well. Um, she's, uh, she's just a fun resource to figure out how to make it into adulthood. Kelly, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks again. You know, anybody that can make up their own word, like adulting, I think is the bomb. You, you know, it actually was uh, sort of a life dream to <laughs> make up a word that entered the lexicon. Um, and, you know, I'm not a scientist, so uh, I, this is probably, you know, this was my best shot. This is uh, perhaps my <laughs> legacy. I, I await it, you know, becoming a new entry in the Oxford English Dictionary. See, you're there. You've arrived. And oh, and you're yeah. still you're still writing, right? Do you have other books planned? I mean, like how to become... A senior citizen. Uh, I mean, is that going to be in yeah. part of your life? <laughs> well, that's probably a little bit further down yeah. the road. Yeah, yeah, Actually, give it time. I'm, I'm working on my new book right now and having a wonderful time. The book is called Gracious. Mm. And I'm originally from the South, from the New Orleans area. And I think graciousness, you know, is such a wonderful, wonderful quality. And I think we live in a time when it's, you know, it's really easy to be distracted it's really easy to sort of talk about ourselves endlessly on social media, to have just quick interactions, but, but not really take the time to be with the humans around us and have that good conversation, you know, pay, pay real attention to them. So mm. I'm in- interviewing lots and lots of women and, and men, men too, but, okay, but good. a lot of Definitely. Oh, a gracious man. There is nothing like it. There's nothing more wonderful than gracious and courtly man. Uh, and, and sort of examining what that quality is and and how we can how we can bring it back a little bit. I love that. And because it is it's like a lost art. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's interesting because it it really was something that, you know, would be really emphasized at home and taught in schools. And We've gotten away from that, but but people love it, you know. And and having good manners is, you know, it's not about you know. Oh, at this time you use this tiny fork to stab that piece of fruit. Otherwise, you know, right. you'll never be invited to the queen's table again. No, it's about 
you know, consideration and making others feel feel comfortable and at ease when they're with you. And and people respond to it and people love it. And you, but they talk to me as though it's extinct. You know, it's just, it's the dodo bird or something. You know? <laughs> like, oh, manners are dead. And I just want to say, no, no, no. Manners is are things that we can all learn and that we can all do. And it really doesn't. It doesn't cost a dime. It just it takes, you know, extra attention and and moving through your day a little bit slower. But I I think the rewards are well worth it. And it seems like graciousness is the next step. I mean, adulthood is one thing, but I mean that just means you're I guess self sufficient. You're you're independent. You're able. You're capable. But gracious almost brings a whole different spirit to it. A whole different. Now you're an adult with, I don't know with respect. Yeah. Well, I think of graciousness as, you know, none of us really can do anything alone. You know, even if you're pursuing something solitary, you know, like writing a book, yeah. uh, you're, you're turning on your computer, which is run by power that other people are making for you somewhere. And you're working on a laptop that again, you probably could not build yourself. So, I mean, humans have to interact and cooperate and work together every day. And and so I think of being gracious and kind as really elevating that to maybe to its highest and finest form. And, and you know, even just the word grace is a very, very interesting word. I mean, it's very, it's, it's an ancient word. It goes back to Sanskrit. The Greeks worshipped the graces, of course, grace is a very important concept to many religions, mm-hmm. and it's understood as, you know, sort of the light and love of God reflecting off of us as humans. Hmm. And you... And, and, you know, that's what we show to each other when we're, when we're gracious. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's brilliant. How many times has somebody not graciously received an award? Or, I mean, we, we kind of notice and we always joke about the um, maybe the non-gracious way of doing it, but we don't ever highlight how to do it, what what it looks like, what it feels like. We need solutions yeah. on graciousness. Well, and you know, again, this is like adulting. You know, I I am not. I gosh, I really wish I was the paragon of graciousness, but I'm not. You know, I'm like everyone else, and I can get in my own head and sort of stew or you know, think a little bit too much about myself and and not other people. But, you know, I've gotten so much wonderful advice for this book. Uh, One of my favorite pieces is from my friend Nora, who is not, you know, I'm I'm speaking to a lot of women who are several decades older than me, but Nora's actually younger than me. Hmm. And Nora said, you know, when I think of someone who's gracious, I just think of someone who is always thinking about other people and not themselves. And, you know, considering how the people around them are feeling, uh, thinking about what you can do, you know, to, to acknowledge them and their humanity. And so I wanted to play devil's advocate and I said, okay, Nora, but what if someone maybe likes, you know, kind of thinking about themselves and their own stuff. And she said to me, well, I guess to that person, I would say, Think about how many people you know in your life. Hundreds? Thousands? Don't you think a life spent thinking about hundreds or thousands of people would be way more interesting than a life spent thinking about just one? Mm. Yeah. 
That's great. Yeah, yeah. And and so, you know, it's it's definitely it's not nearly as, you know, straightforward and how to ish. Uh but there are many, many, you know, examples given throughout the book of, you know, how how we can be gracious just as we go through our day. Simple things, just hmm. making sure that you say hello and goodbye to everyone. Uh, which sounds so obvious, but then if you pay attention for a day, you you probably realize that you don't always do that. You don't always greet people, you know. You you greet someone who's coming into your home or a friend that you're meeting, but maybe you don't say hello to that store clerk right in the morning. Or and, thank but, you, but, you know, or yeah. Yeah, they, they deserve it. And just, you know, appreciating the things that people do for you and never feeling entitled to it because when you don't feel entitled to anything then everything you receive becomes a gift yeah then it's not yeah you're not expecting it it's a surprise exactly you know if if you get an invitation to a party then that person didn't have to invite you to the party but they as they were planning this special evening for their friends they thought oh gosh let's have kelly and and that's an honor that they want me there. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not entitled to it. And so because of that, you know, you, you don't critique the party in your head. You don't think, you know, of what you could have done better. You are simply really grateful that you're there. And um, that that gratitude really is is very life-changing. It changes your perspective on your day, every day. And of course, you know, I, I it's, I, luckily, I feel like some of it is rubbing off on me, or at least some of the viewpoints that that I'm getting are rubbing off. And and it, you know, not only is it really make you a more pleasant person to be around, but it feels really good. You feel happier. Yeah. As you move through your day. And it, which that just that just changes everything. Right now, I can just enjoy my life. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, you're, you're, you're not spending a lot of time, you know, when you're not spending a lot of time thinking about yourself, that means that you're not spending a lot of time, you know, criticizing yourself or comparing yourself to everyone around you and, you know, maybe being envious or trying to figure out, you know, why does this person have this and I don't, you know? Hmm. Does um, So part of the motivation, and I guess this is probably the final question, is what – you are almost, it sounds like, just learning and exploring life, and you're doing it as a writer. Is that is yeah. that what you're doing? Because, like, you, you keep talking about how you're not a pro at this stuff. You're just curious. And then you just ask people that have ideas, and you take ideas, and they feel good. I mean, some are funny, yeah. and some are, some just make you feel good, but you're starting to internalize it as you go. Yeah. I mean, I would say that I've always been sort of a natural reporter, even before I was a reporter. And I'm just really interested in talking to humans about what they think and why they think it and, you know, what motivates them to get up in the morning and and what, you know, what they wish the world would know. And I I think that that ends up usually, you know, with adulting and certain I hope with gracious, something that other people turn out to be interested in too. And I'm just lucky enough to get to, you know, 
enjoy enjoy the ride as I'm putting it together. Yeah. No, it's working. It's working, Kelly. No, it really is. I love it. And I just love the idea that you're also you're learning and, and then teaching. There's a great benefit in life to asking questions, listening to others, and then teaching what you learn. It's powerful. Kelly Williams Brown is the website. Go to the website, kellywilliamsbrown.com. And also go look for the books Adulting, How to Become a Grown-Up in 468 Easy-ish Steps, and her new coming uh, book that should be out, um, Graciousness. Um, Kelly, when will that book be ready? That is coming out in a winter of 2017. There you so, go. Uh, not immediate, working yeah. on it through the summer, but um, I will definitely let y'all know Do when it. it comes We'll out. have you back. We'll talk graciousness. Oh, that would be fabulous. I should... I should know much more by then. Awesome. So. Kelly, thank you so much, and, and uh, keep up the great investigative work. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me, and I hope you have a wonder- wonderful rest of your day. You too. Kelly Williams-Brown, folks. And again, the book, Adulting, we all need it. In fact, we got two, bo- two copies of it for Ben <laughs> and a dictionary uh, <laughs> to help him through that difficult ride. Stick with us, folks. Doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives, and see the good in the world, for heaven's sakes. We just saw a bunch of it right there. We'll take a break. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Um, you know, so what would you teach somebody that needs to, you know, they're going out on their own. So all of these college graduates that will be graduating in the next few weeks, what information do they need to know? There's so many things and you can't, the deal is, you know, it may not even matter if you do tell them because... How many times have you told somebody something to your children and they just can't hear it yet? They're not ready to receive it. Right, Ben? Why do you look at me like that? I don't know. It's just like I've tried to tell you a hundred different ways and you just you just forget. It's hard to remember. Did your parents give you great advice so when you left – you're coming to BYU. What did they say? What were the what was the parting advice they gave you? Good luck, son. Have fun. Study hard. Is that it? That's good. That's what I remember. That's great advice. Yeah. Yeah. Did they say anything about eating in the tub? No, but they did say to brush my teeth. Did they? Um, Yeah. It's funny you'd have to say that. Shower at least three times a week. Really? Well. Seems like underdoing it. I think they were building up from what I was doing. Oh, that's a good point. It was a stretch goal. <laughs> so they they were just trying to stretch you, a little stretch goal. Take you from one time a week to three. On a good day, on a good week. Yeah, because I worry. Like I see pictures of my son on his LDS mission, and there's just little things that you know aren't happening. You know? Like a collar stay. Do you know what a collar stay is? Or a, those, oh, yeah. Those things you put in your collars, right, to make them nice and sharp. So we we spent hundreds and hundreds of dollars on shirts for this boy and all of his collars are curling into little, you know, rolls, little parchment rolls. And I'm thinking 
collar stay. Just put a collar stay in. Remember that little bag of collar stays, son? So we now write him, hey, pal. And you want to be positive. You don't want to be negative. Hey, buddy. You notice how your collars are curling in? Just little collar stays. Now, is that a big deal? No. It's just In Europe, they sew them into the shirt. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That seems like the right way to do it. Then it's not a choice. <laughs> I like anything I can do to take away agency. That's how I play the game. Um, but there's other advice. What other advice would you give out there to your kids? What would you love your children to know? Like clean up a mess. When you make the mess, clean it up. That's it. Put the cap on the toothpaste. Just because if you do that, it won't dry up and you won't have to, you know, you won't have a mess. These are basic things. Put water. My wife taught me this one. Put water. If you're not – so when you put a dish in the sink, just put water in it. Just get water on the dish and like, you know, cover it in water. And it makes it easy to clean. But most of us don't do that. My wife taught me the craziest thing when we first got married. Hang up your towel. Just hang up your towel. That's a little radical. I'm like, but what? Who, what? It's like what you do is when you've used your towel, it's just as easy to just hang it. Then it dries. And tomorrow you'll use it again. Said it just like that. I'm like, wow, that makes so much sense, especially because we're different, right? Um, I have a rule where let's just do everything once, right? So just do it once. Don't like if you take your shoes off and you get up, like you're let's say you're watching TV and you kick your shoes off, then you pick your shoes up and then just take them with you. When you go to bed and put them away. But we'll have kids that will kick their shoes off and then my wife will move them and then we'll move them and then we'll move them and then we'll remind them and then we'll move them five times. That seems like the more logical. (laughs) Just do everything once, right? So the minute you think of something, just do it. Just do what you thought of. Some great advice too is just get one chore done a day. When you come home, get one chore done a day. Just one thing. It works. Just one thing. You don't need to do 10 things. Just one thing. (sighs) Sometimes just get it started. We've talked about this on the show before. Sometimes you just need to get the goal started because once you get it started, then your body will just naturally kind of – and your mind will just naturally take over and you'll be into it and you'll get it done. Just get it started. Ah, there's just a lot of advice about the simple things, right? Just the simple things. Don't iron your wife's blouse. It will turn ugly. It, you'll ruin it. It will get bad. Dry clean only. Just things like that. Hang up your coat. Was the blouse one a recent one? No. No, I don't want to talk about it. And no one can prove I did it. So let's just be real. It's just a blouse. It's not like we can't replace it. 
seem a bit defensive. No, I'm not defensive. I'm just sick of it. Anyway, <laughs> that's hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. Basic, basic advice. We all need it. We all need it so bad. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. Your guide on the side. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Interesting research uh, from Dr. John Allen about home. Home is where the heart is, right? And uh, so to some degree or another, we make this home. We, we, we make it. And uh, it's, it's probably very much up to us. Again, as a, as a social psychologist, my view is very much none of us are just born knowing who we are. None of us are born knowing what life is about. We engage life. And it's been very interesting watching um, the passing of my mother-in-law, uh, Marilee Tanner Priest. It's um, just to see... How it's a the the dying process, for example, is very much uh, it's a learned behavior. And my wife and I had many a discussion about whether we should, you know, take our kids to see her when she's not in this great state of Alzheimer's. And is my wife's point was that oh, I don't want to make it, I don't want to make them remember her this way. But one of the things I just remember learning too as a young kid was you have to eventually stay in the space, right? And be in the moment. And sometimes those moments aren't pretty, like the passing of someone. Um, But like our good Dr. John Allen was talking about earlier, there is that sense of home that you can be safe. um, You can be safe with your family. And so as we gather together to help each other mourn and to get through this process, there is a, there's a, an elevation of our own experience, of our own safety as a family. Now that now we're going through something this this serious as death, we're starting to realize as a family that we can do stuff. We can handle hard stuff. In fact, my wife said, it's teaching me that I can do hard stuff. So, man, to go through that together... Um, powerful. And one of the things we've we've really learned is to stay in the present. You know, treasure the sweetness of everyday moments. And if we could do that when we're when we're healthy, we might have more opportunities um to enjoy the times that we have together now. A lot of us uh might live more out of the future, some of us live more out of our past. Uh, past, I've noticed just as we're going through this grieving process, the past seems to bring up a lot of guilt. Oh, I wish we had done more of this. I wish I could have done that. I wish I had been there for that. Or some of us don't live out of the past. We live more out of the future. Well, what, okay, what are we going to do next week? And you can even see it just in this process of losing somebody that you care about. Um, like, are we worried, too worried about... The things we didn't do, or are we too worried about what's going to happen now? I mean, with the passing of someone you love, you start to worry, I wish I had spent more time with her. 
Or we might now be worrying, what are we going to say at the funeral? And yet in the space right now, there's an incredible peace. Ah, and the peace, though, is, is in the present. So one of the powerful things, if you want to learn to treasure your family, stay in the present. Stay in the present. When they're asking you the questions and you're so tired and you just want them to go to bed, I just want you to go to bed. Don't ask me any more questions. See if you can just stay in the present with them, your kids, a little bit longer. Let them talk. Ask them what they're thinking about, what they're feeling about. Um, power. There's power in the present in our lives. But, you know, we're sold a lot about the future and we're sold a lot about the past. Uh, let's learn to live in the now. Another tool we can use to kind of treasure our, our home and our families is to live out of love and not fear. So many of us are so fear-based, right? We're so afraid so-and-so is going to be mad. Don't try to motivate your children out of fear, Uh, Or you're just going to create fearful people, fearful kids that don't know how to say no, that if anybody induces a little fear in their life, they're going to just keep saying yes. Nothing inhibits a person's ability to treasure family uh, more than the focus of fear. Our own fear, our own pain, our own suffering— They're very self-absorbed, right? Those are self-absorbed paradigms, very natural to the natural kind of man, but they do keep us from offering the best to the world. Sometimes we got to just love ourselves enough to say no more or love others enough to say, I'm going to let you go. I had a couple in my office a while ago that um, they're just so miserable with each other. And uh, I was talking to the woman and she kept telling me that Oh, she just wants him to be happy and she just – she doesn't want to hurt him and she – but she wants him happy but she can't do this anymore. But she's really stuck. And I said, well, it sounds like you really love him and you don't want to hurt him anymore. Well, yeah, I don't. Well, then why would you stay with him and keep hurting him? Now, the minute I – we got into that, we found out she was too afraid to leave him in the end. She tells the story that she's staying for him, but in reality, she found out she's just too afraid to go out on her own. And the amazing thing is, over time, I'm convinced, and I've seen it with others, that once she's strong enough to actually be able to go out on her own, he's going to have to change the game. He's going to have to get healthy, too. Some of us stay stuck in our lives and our marriages. We stay that way because we're not independent enough to do what we need to do in our lives. We're not strong enough to leave them out of love, and we're not strong enough to stay with them out of love. So we kind of stay with them, but we're not in the marriage. We're constantly wanting to get out. We need to live more out of love, uh, not so much out of fear. And then the other one that I think is really important in families— to kind of create treasure and to treasure up the sweetness of your family is to offer your gifts as a family. Every one of my kids has so many different talents and every child needs to be offering their gifts. And what I try to do with my family, and I'm not perfect at it by any means, is help find those gifts with them, help them help point them out, lead them to resources, and then As a family, what if we could use our gifts to elevate the world around us? And we use that and we talk about it and 
we use all of our – it's very clear, uh, the gifts and the strengths of, of my children, and we talk about them. Who should do this? Who should do this? Who would be better suited to handle this? We could also use those strengths to teach each other, right? So I can have one child that's strong in you know the, the verbal area. Go help the one that's not as strong in the verbal area. Send those two kids up to the counter to talk to the the person behind the counter. Um, it's it's powerful when you are using the family unit as a way to kind of foster gifts and strengthen the gifts. How powerful will that be if all of us could leave our family unit knowing what our unique gifts are to this world and be motivated and excited to share those gifts? Powerful, right? Treasuring the sweetness of family and home. Uh, again, we got to learn to stay in the present, live out of love, not fear, and offer the, our gifts to the world. And as we're elevating each other with our gifts, our abilities, and celebrating those gifts, we, we really um, we're elevating ourselves as well uh, along the road there. Anyway, interesting stuff, uh, interesting stuff, and uh, not easy, but worth it. Seems like it always works that way, doesn't it? <laughs> The hardest things, and sometimes family and home can be the hardest thing. Um, it can also be, as we're finding out, just with the passing of someone we love, it's sweet. Sweet. And sweet memories, but hard, right? But that pain that we're feeling from the death of someone we love, it, it simply is coming from the fact that we loved someone that deeply. The deeper the pain, the deeper the love. It's the price we pay. For, for having home. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Handling the flow of information and uh, slowing it down if you can. In, in our preparation for this show, there's, there's really, I don't know, 30, 40 articles that, we, that we're prepping on per show or per day. So those are those are articles. Those are just stories we need to know about. The news we need to keep up on, and and it's it's just full on, pretty overwhelming. Um, but also, it I'm not so worried. I mean, most of you don't have to put a radio show together for three hours. But what I worry more about is what we do to each other. I mean, if you've ever just been on. Uh, you know, a, a message board with a bunch of with five or six other of your friends trying to get a date or a time to go to dinner together. It's it really is. It's exhausting because you're going to be interrupted 50 times from all of your friends and it's going to slow you down. So we might be able to help each other. And that's one of the things I wanted to just talk about in this little coach's corner. Give you eight rules to healthier online living. We, and if I could just make it so every all the people in my life aren't making it harder for me, that's a great start. Uh, but it also, you know, I could also make sure that I'm not on every, you know, automatic emailing list, that I have junk mail that goes to a junk mail file. Um, there's there's little tricks of, of the technology trade to get through it. So here we go. Here are eight different rules that you can teach your, your family, your kids to live online without harming your offline world. Number one, remember to use tech to live life, not to avoid it. Many of us spend the majority of our time on our technology, uh, you know, caught up in it, kind of riding the wave, surfing the wave of all this information. But we also need to know when to turn it off. Um, last night was the first night I 
actually had eight hours of sleep in a really long time because of this early morning schedule for this show. And it happened because I said, okay, I'm going to bed, kissed everyone goodbye, said goodnight, all that. And my wife said, why don't you give me your phone? And then that way you won't go in there and watch watch any shows or just surf. And I'm like, ugh, really? And I handed her my phone. At 9 o'clock last night, I handed my wife my phone. I set my alarms for this morning, and she promised to just plug it in right by my bed. And so when she went to bed, she plugged it in. Bada boom, bada bing, got up and had eight hours of sleep. And it feels fantastic. We need to learn to use our tech to live life, not avoid it. Um, Master all the apps you can with time management. We just heard some great examples from Dan Levitin. Use your time management planner, your productivity devices to help you to make notes. Get a really good note section or a really good task section where you just hit your button and say, Siri, take take a note. Um, interesting stuff. Another remem- remembering uh, or number rule is to remember to help, not hurt others through technology. Don't make critical comments of others via text or email or chat. Don't get sucked into those, you know, those um, those chat messages where you're beating somebody down because they're from a different school and you don't like. You know, there's a major rivalry. Don't get caught up into that. Focus on being positive as you're online. So that so that when your you know when your text or your information comes through to me on Facebook on my feed that I don't have to deal with your negativity, please make it easier for all of us by being more positive. Keep private things private. I don't want to. I don't want to hear about private things. I don't want to hear about private fights. I don't want your pictures to get out there. I don't want to see any of that stuff. Always put safety first is another rule. And with your kids, you got to teach them that uh, keep their passwords to themselves. Don't give out information about where you live, especially people you don't know. Don't get online and and uh, and tell about your private and your personal matters. Another rule is don't bully others. You know, don't you don't have to tell us about the great party you're having with your friends that other people weren't invited to. Don't pretend to be someone else online. Don't ever play that game. People have committed suicide because of that type of bullying and uh, and that behavior. And some of that behavior came from adults. Remember that online you should be a leader, not just a follower. You can lead people out by reposting more positive things, remembering uh, more positive statements and making more positive statements online. Show respect to other people through your technology. Build them up. When you see something's going on, we just had my mother-in-law pass away, and it's amazing the messages that we're getting and how that has strengthened our family. Um, so use your technology to show respect. And then another rule this for all of us is to slow the flow. Actively delete stuff. Take it off. You don't have to unsubscribe. For, I mean, you can't unsubscribe from lists. You don't have to keep receiving messages that don't serve you. Call something spam if it's spam. Get your name off of certain lists. Don't sign up for certain lists. Use technology breaks consistently throughout the day. Have a break every day. Have a break every month. Have a break every year where you actually go on a fast where we're not We're not going to do it. We're not going to be online. And that's the Coach's Corner. More ideas, more tools to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier, happier life. Stick with us, folks, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, with just a single click, we can access almost anything on the internet, right? Cat videos, profiles of our former classmates, find out what they're up to. Also, you know, just if you're looking for a good recipe or trying to figure out the latest thing Trump said. You know, these all uh, are made possible because of this growing online community. And uh, we, which, you know, we thought, what's a, what a great blessing, right? Access to all of this information. But does, does the access to the information truly mean that we're connected? Joining us today is Dr. Ethan Zuckerman. He's the author of Digital Cosmopolitans, Why We Think the Internet Connects Us and Why It Doesn't and How to Rewire It. The book is called Rewire, and uh, he's going to help us, I think, understand that maybe just because we have the access doesn't inherently mean we're creating the connections we need. Dr. Ethan Zuckerman, thank you so much for being with us today. Good morning, Matt. And you've inadvertently uh, promoted me. I'm not a doctor, but uh, oh, you're not. To be with you and thrilled well, you, to talk you to you know what? about this. You are now, Ethan. You oh, have well, officially been. <laughs> I've given you an honorary degree from the Matt Townsend Show. That's fantastic. I uh, I will put that on my CV and I will wear it with pride. But but Matt, you've got the heart of the book. You've got the heart yeah, of the argument. I love this. Um, well, thank you. I I am an old school internet guy. I've been online since 1989, and back in the day, many of us really believed that having access to this network that connected people all over the globe was going to give us this truly global view. Right. And what it's turned out is in many ways, the Internet makes it a lot easier to connect to people we already know. Uh, and this is a bit of an irony for many of us. So much of the information we get these days is really reconnecting us with old friends. Hmm. It's really keeping us within existing social networks like Facebook, helping us you know, understand where our friends from high school were. And despite the fact that there are at this point hundreds of millions of people from different nations online, you can very easily go through a week or a year and not encounter any of the 60 million Nigerians mm-hmm. who are online in one fashion or another. So really, now some would say, well, what's the problem with that, Ethan? I mean, this is – this this is good. Now I can stay connected to my circle. But I guess the problem you're saying is we're not connecting to the bigger whole. So there's nothing wrong with staying connected to your circle. And I think in terms of emotional support and, uh, you know, keeping up those strong ties over time, I think all of that's extremely valuable. But there's two issues that we end up running into. The first issue is that it's possible to get isolated and only see things from one point of view. Some people talk about this as echo chambers. Some people have talked about this as filter bubbles. But usually when we talk about it, we're talking about it in terms of U.S. politics. Mm. If you're on the left, maybe you only hear from people on the left. If you're on the right, maybe you only hear from people on the right. One of the bigger problems is that if you're in the U.S., it's very hard to get a non-U.S. perspective on things. So you can get isolated in that national bubble. Mm. So that's the first thing. It gives you this, this local perspective, and you end up believing that that local perspective is the only one that matters. Here's the second piece of it. We are connected with the rest of the world to an unprecedented degree. The stuff that we are wearing, that we're eating, the chair that I'm sitting on, these things are all from different countries. We are interlocked with the rest of the world through travel, through trade, and we don't remember it most of the time. We pay attention at a moment or two when suddenly someone in West Africa gets Ebola 
and shows up in a hospital in Texas, and we go, whoa, yeah. wait a second, maybe we should just shut down all of our connectivity. And the answer is we can't. The world is so connected that we have almost an obligation to be more knowledgeable about what's going on in other parts of the world, if only so we understand how the world really works today. Mm. And, I mean, it's Americans seem to have always been branded fairly or not as fairly self-centric, you know, wearing their American flag T-shirt, you know, in the middle of France and uh, speaking loudly at a sacred cathedral while everyone is trying to be reverent or whatever. Um, we're kind of always known as being that way. But this this is also just – this is more of a – this is an actual systemic way that we stay caught in our own view. Well, well so first of all, let me give you some, some good news, which is that uh, Americans are not uniquely awful about this. Good. Okay, good. Um, we're, we're, we're not even the worst tourists in the world, uh, actually. <laughs> that's that, that, that probably goes to the Brits, uh, who have a tendency <laughs> to drink a little bit too much when they hit the road. Um, but it, it's more a, a fundamental piece of human nature. I did a study when I was working on this book where I looked at where people got their news. And the answer is, if you are in a big nation, if you're in sort of the, the dominant nation of the region, you're in Russia, you're in India, you're in France, you're going to get almost all of your news from local news sources. If you are in a smaller nation, a nation that you know shares a border with a big, powerful nation, so let's say you're in Nepal, let's say you're in Belgium, you're going to start getting a lot of your news internationally. You're going to start looking across the border. So if you're from any sort of big, powerful nation, it's very, very likely that you're going to be isolated in this bubble to one extent or another. But there's an even more basic tendency. It's got a, it, I'm going to use a $1 word here, but uh, <laughs> everybody gets to learn one today. It's called homophily. Homophily is the tendency of birds of a feather to flock together. We naturally pay more attention to people who have things in common with us. If you are an American, you pay more attention to Americans. If you're a Christian, you pay more attention to Christians. Uh, if, if you're a young person, you pay more attention to young people. We flock to people who we think are like us. We have the strong tendency to find our tribe. And so the further away from someone someone looks to us, that the more cultural distance we can see, the harder a time we have paying attention to them. Let me just give you a really simple example. Yeah. Do you remember about uh, a, a year ago, those attacks on Charlie Hebdo, that French newspaper, right, right. satirical newspaper, got a huge amount of attention because a lot of people could think of themselves, wow, what if I had been at work and a gunman stormed up the stairs and started shooting the place up because of my beliefs? The same week, more than 2,000 people died in northern Nigeria when they were attacked by Boko Haram. Oh. So two horrific examples of Islamic terrorism, but the Nigeria story got almost no attention. And everybody remembers the Charlie Hebdo story. So true. It's because it's really hard for us to think about what would it be like <clears throat> to be a rural Nigerian. It's so culturally distant from us that just on some very basic level, those lives matter less to us. And what I'm trying to say is that that's not a healthy way to live in a connected world. We've got to start looking for some ways to fix it. Wow. That is, and those are perfect examples. And then even, I think we just heard that 500 people drown 
in um, I, I guess refugees coming between Italy and Libya or something. And I'm like, we don't even know the story. We hardly even hear that story because I guess we don't relate to it because of homophily. Well, I think there's homophily where we have a hard time putting ourselves in the shoes of Syrian refugees. I also think that news tends to be about surprise and things that happen over long periods of time that happen again and again. I think what happens is we have a phenomenon called Migo, my eyes glaze over. I've heard that story before. I've heard that tragedy before. I can't make myself care about it. Hmm. And so a lot of what I was hoping social media might help with is what people sometimes call the caring problem. Maybe I can get over the difficulty of caring about Nigeria by starting to build friendships with Nigerians. Maybe if my social network changes, maybe if it broadens, maybe if it expands, then I'm going to have a personal tie to these places. But what's been very interesting is that the Internet very early on in, say, the 1980s and the 1990s, was a pretty international place, but mostly just because there weren't very many of us using it. Mm -hmm. But once we got to the mainstream Internet, once we get into the 2010s, you know, people really are using this tool mostly to reinforce those existing ties. And the notion of, hey, let's go online and meet someone random from another country, it, it sounds almost crazy, even though there are some efforts to try to make it happen. Hmm. And you call that, I guess, that, that uh, the 90s idea that we'd go out and meet the world and get to know the world was, I guess, the cosmopolitan idea. We were going to become cosmopolitanized. What do you call it? Yes. So, so what I was sort of hoping we might see uh, is digital cosmopolitanism. And, and cosmopolitanism, it's a, it's a very old idea. It's this idea that rather than being a citizen of the city that you're in, you're a citizen of the world. And, and that you want to try to figure out how to be at home anywhere in the world. It's an amazing Ghanaian philosopher named Kwame Apia. And he basically says cosmopolitanism is really simple. It basically comes down to realizing that there are other people in the world who have different values and different ways of living than you do, and that you might have some obligations to them. Mm. So, you know, really simply put, other people in the world view the world different ways. They have different rules. They have different perspectives. And even though that's the case, maybe it's not enough just to accept that. Maybe we really are interconnected. Maybe we really are dependent. And, and so the hope was that as we got a media that took away these barriers, that makes it so easy for us potentially to get information from other points in the world, many of us might start feeling more of those ties. And, and I want to tell you, it's possible. I've been helping to run a project for 11 years now called Global Voices. And this is a project that has 1,400 authors from over 100 different countries. And everyone participates in this. Almost everyone in the project is a volunteer. We report news from each other's countries, and we do it because we want to understand what's going on across those borders and because we want to develop those relationships and those friendships. But it doesn't happen automatically. Yeah. And that was the big discovery out of this. I think a lot of us hoped that this would just go ahead and happen. This would just be a consequence of net connectivity. And what we're finding instead is that if we want it to happen, we would have to choose to make it happen. We'd have to work really hard at it. Mm. It's um, it, it actually it's it's a beautiful concept. It really 
is, this idea that we are connected to everyone on the earth and we have an obligation to one another. Um, and, and again, we have to act to make it happen. Powerful stuff, Ethan. Let's take a break. Again, we're speaking with Ethan, who's the direct, uh, Ethan Zuckerman, who is the director of the Center for Civic Media at MIT and a principal research scientist there in the Media Lab. Um, he's helping all of us, I think, open our minds up ab- about uh, this need to, to understand our connectivity to others and, um, and maybe do whatever we can to open up our hearts, our minds, our, our soul to, to the people of the world. We'll take a break, folks. We'll be right back continuing to understand how to rewire and use the Internet to, uh, to connect. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us, uh, Ethan Zuckerman, director of the Center uh, uh, for Civic Media at MIT. He um, also is uh, uses his research to focus on the distribution of attention in mainstream and new media and uh, to the use of technology for international development. Uh, it's a powerful lesson he's teaching us. He also wrote a book called Rewire. Digital cosmopolitans in the age of connection, and a digital cosmopolitan basically is somebody that um, recognizes that they are a citizen of the world, and that being a citizen of the world means you might want to try to understand the world and and people from different places and uh, and understand too that there is an obligation as a fellow citizen on this big great big planet flying through space. It's there's something going on here, and we need to pay attention and take care of one another. Again, welcome back to the show, Ethan Zuckerman. So great to be with you, Matt. This is cool. Um, yeah, so, so I, I'd love to just say another word about that Do. notion of obligations. So, so let's go back to Ebola. Remember Ebola? Yeah. No, no, no. You mean Dallas Ebola or African <laughs> Ebola? <laughs> so I've I've lived and worked in, in, in West Africa for for a whole lot of my life. I used to live in Ghana in West Africa, um, and you know Ghana was really spared Ebola, but uh, Liberia, Sierra Leone, Guinea, these countries had a really hard time with it. And what's interesting is that countries that were just a little bit richer, like Nigeria, managed to do okay with it. Ebola came to Nigeria, and Nigeria shut it down really quickly. Uh, but, you know, Liberia, Sierra Leone, these are, these are two of the poorest countries in the world. And they had huge, huge problems with it. And eventually, Ebola started becoming a problem for the United States as well. Right. So if we took seriously this idea that the world is connected, and inherently connected, that there's really no way that we can close off these connections to the rest of the world, we would be trying to build up the healthcare system in West Africa. It's probably not a ton of money. These are very, very poor nations. Just getting to the point where those countries can respond to the next round of disease in the long run is probably smarter than trying to figure out how to build some sort of wall and ensure that no one from West Africa ever makes it into the United States again. It's so true, huh? It's really hard 
for us to get our heads around it. And so, you know, I suspect most people haven't read any news from Liberia in the last <laughs> year or so now that, now that it's not an immediate threat. And so this is what I'm sort of hoping we can find a way to debug. If we can understand that the connection is, is really inherent, that, that no matter Donald Trump's wildest fantasies, you know, if you want to eat chocolate in the future, we're probably going to be connected to West Africa because that's <laughs> where cocoa gets right. grown. Um, that as long as we're going to remain connected, we've got to start thinking about what we know and what our obligations are to, to people in these other parts of the world. And I wonder, though, if because then we, it seems like, might see them as um, something we can use, uh, control, take advantage of. Is that is that a worry too? Right? I mean, we want them. We want them because they're, you know, they're like us instead of just wanting them because they have cocoa. So, so I, I'm not sure that that. You know, wanting to, to take advantage of people is the worst thing in the world. Uh, <laughs> I guess it does. It's the market, right? The markets have always sure. been the way we engage. Sure. Hu- human beings trade with one another. They make deals with one another. They interact with one another. They marry one another. Um, the, the problem is when we ignore one another mm. uh, and, and we still find ourselves sharing the same world, sharing the same airport, sharing the same planet, sharing the same climate. Yeah. Um, I, I went and, and gave a talk in my church um, about two months ago about climate change. And it was an uncomfortable talk because what I ended up saying to my fellow congregants was that not only did we have to figure out how the U.S. could have a much lighter environmental footprint, but we had to figure out how people in the rest of the world could have the modern conveniences that we have. That there's no way to essentially say to people in China or India or in sub-Saharan Africa, sorry, you're not going to have any progress. It's really bad for the planet. So we're going to live the way that we live, and we're yeah. going to cut back, and you're not going to advance. Yeah, you guys we'll missed the boat. Sorry. That's right. Sorry. Sorry it didn't work out for you. <laughs> you know, ne- next time around that wheel of karma, get born in a better place. Uh, no, somehow we've got to find a way for everyone around the world to have a wonderful you know, future filled with opportunity in a way that's also environmentally sustainable. That forces us to think really, really differently than the ways that we're generally inclined to think. And, and so these things are huge challenges. This is not me sort of like trying to beat people up for being insufficiently global. As you mentioned before, there's systemic barriers to this. When we open a newspaper, a newspaper is far more likely to tell us about wealthy nations than poor nations. When we go onto Google and search for information, we tend to search for information about people and places and things that we already know are important. When we go onto Facebook, we tend to connect with the people that we already know, not use these tools to reach out and make new connections. And those are all places where we would have to engage in some rewiring if we wanted the media to help us make these connections. Hmm. So the rewiring, is it I, – I mean, I, I, it seems like a lot of us might be waiting for – I'm waiting for someone else to rewire it. I'm waiting for the government or you – or a big organ, you know, Google. But the reality is the rewiring has to be us. So, so I think there's two versions of the rewiring. I think we can make personal choices to live in a, in a different media universe. 
Um, I teach classes here on journalism and, and social change and the future of news, but my, my, my most popular class here uh, is, is on news and participatory media. And everyone who takes this class, the first week, they keep a media diary. And they, they write down what they've listened to or what they've watched, what they've read. And then I just ask people to sort of make some generalizations. What did you learn about this? Um, one of the things that I've learned doing this, and I've, I've done this five times now, uh, is that radio, uh, for me, is the medium that most often leads to serendipity. Uh, because I'm just listening. I don't turn away from a story that I think I might not be interested hmm. in because I'm sort of along for the ride. If NPR, for instance, suddenly takes me to Burma, I'm going to go along with them. Right. Whereas if I have choice, if I can sort of flip through the headlines that I know that I care about in the newspaper, you know, I'm going to read about the Green Bay Packers all the time <laughs> because that's my team and that's you know who I want to know about. Right. So sometimes having choice isn't so great. So you can start looking at this and you can start hacking your own behavior. Behavior. You can say, you know what, I really want to know more about France. So I'm going to find an English language paper that focuses heavily on France, and I'm going to get some more stories from it. Or I know I just want to be more global, and I know it's hard, so I'm going to lean heavily on NPR. I'm going to lean on the BBC, which I know are deeply global information sources and are going to sort of push me there. But then there's the systemic part of it. And in truth, the people that I was really writing Rewire for in some ways are my students. And my students come out of MIT, they get a master's degree or they get a PhD, and they go to work for Google or Facebook or these big tech companies. Many of them start their own big tech companies. And I wanted to have them take this idea that the tools that we use, these technological tools that we use, make it easier to know about some places and some people and harder to know about others. So I just wanted to make the case to them that they might have a responsibility in building these tools to help us become more global. Hmm. It's, it, I mean, that, that's what's powerful, I guess, is we have a shift, right? We shift – if we can shift our thinking – to the global world. I mean, we're already in it. We just seem to kind of consider ourselves, you know, the arm. We're the arm of the world. Um, but we don't necessarily see how one hand can take care of another. In, in, in one of the things I know you mentioned in your book is, and you just brought up the serendipity, um, the, is there's, there's basically three solutions that are potential solutions you talked about. Transparent translation – Bridge figures. Talk to us about bridge figures and talk to us about engineered serendipity, which you just explained a little bit there. Sure. Well, let me do this real, real quick. Translation's yeah. critical um, because everyone wants to talk in their own language. The dream that everyone's going to speak English is, is a dumb dream. It's just not going to happen. And um, you know, while it would be great for a lot of us to, to learn Chinese, what we really need to do is make translation happen all the time. When you get online, when you look for information, you suddenly stumble across a language you don't speak. Right now, we just turn away from it. We mm -hmm. basically say, not for me. We need translation to happen in the background. We need it to be much better. And we basically need to find ways to, to not make language a barrier to knowledge. The second thing is that when we find information from other countries, a lot of the time it doesn't make any sense. You could pick up uh, a newspaper like the Vanguard in Nigeria. Uh, it's written in English. It's not going to make any sense to you because you don't know anything about Nigerian politics. Right. You don't know how to relate to those stories. 
bridge figures are people who have feet figuratively in two different cultures. And so they can say, oh, I know Nigeria and I know the United States, so I know how to explain this to you. And I also know how to help you care about it. And it's my contention that these bridge figures, these people who bridge between cultures, are incredibly well positioned to dominate the next 20 years of the economy. Mm. These are the people who are going to unlock connections in the global economy. The third thing that's really important is that there's so much information out there. We need help discovering not what we want to know, but that we didn't know we wanted to know. And this is what serendipity is about. Serendipity isn't just random chance. It's the happy accident through hard work. Serendipity is, is, is Fleming finding penicillin, not because he got a lucky break, but because he was working really, really hard to think about bacteria and then managed to see the mold killing off bacteria in the dish. Mm. So serendipity takes work. It might take conscious change. But the idea is that serendipity is something that I believe we can engineer. I think we can actually build systems that help us find the unexpected. And I actually think this is one of the most exciting engineering challenges right now uh, on the contemporary World Wide Web. Wow. That is cool, huh? It's just stuff we don't even know we're looking for. It's synergy. It's it's. Uh... It's this, it's this emergent property that appears that we didn't even know existed until the right parties came together. Powerful. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And you, and you believe you can engineer systems to create this serendipity regularly. Well, we're looking at little ones. We, one of my students, uh, Catherine D'Ignazio, built this wonderful tool that, with your permission, tracked where in the world you read about and then started suggesting articles to you from other wow. you know, great yeah. cities of the world. Um, we're fooling around with tools on Twitter that basically say, let's imagine that you follow high tech in the United States. Wouldn't it be great to be introduced to some of the people who are critical to high tech in Nigeria? So we don't want to give you random people. Mm -hmm. We want to give you people who care about what you care about, but are different from you in one sort of critical dimension. You know, I'm a left-wing secular guy. Maybe it would be really interesting for me to be in touch with people who are, are left-wing, but, but deeply people of faith, uh, or, or right-wing secularists, or, or left-wing secularists, you know, from oh, France. Great, yeah. You know, how do we figure out some way to, to give us something in common, but enough difference that it challenges us? That is beautiful. Get on that. I'm working on it. <laughs> I'm working on no, it. No, Ethan, that is, I mean, seriously, like you could then enroll to be, to have your mind broadened through a tool that starts, you know, you growing you. Powerful. I think we can do it, and I, I think we can build better tools that do it for other people as well. Is this what so you're doing what, at MIT then? This is some of what we're doing at MIT, and a lot of what we're doing at MIT is about helping people use technology to be politically powerful. So this idea of civic media is making media to make change in the world. And so some of the changes that I would like to see are, are for the world to be better connected and more global. Another one is for people who are marginal to be more powerful. Uh, but this whole idea that making media is a way of making change, that's the central idea behind our lab. 
Well, Ethan, you're incredible. That's impressive. And keep up the great work. Now I now you're on my radar, so I can now be changed by you. So I appreciate uh, your insight on this. Again, Ethan Zuckerman is his name. Go find his book, Rewire, Digital Cosmopolitans in the Age of Connection. Thanks again, Ethan, for being with us. Powerful stuff, folks. Man. Now, again, wouldn't it be valuable, I mean, to just start broadening you don't have to like go to all this extreme of being finding your exact opposite, but just start broadening the circle you already believe, you belong in and start understanding all the different sides of that or even just get to another culture. Incredible stuff. Interesting. We'll be back, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Trying to broaden your mind as we uh, help you find the good in the world. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. What do you think about that? Uh, Like just this concept of being a bridge figure. Um, You know, one of the things that we see a lot here at BYU, uh, because we're going out, so many members of the LDS faith go out to different countries to serve missions. Um, They come back with a tie, with a connection to another country. Just yesterday... I was watching, I, I left many moons ago and spent two years in Argentina, and the people there I understand. And when I see what's going on with their president and their economy at times, it, uh, I have a connection for it. I also have an appreciation of a different culture, and it, it stretches me. It, it helps me understand. My son lived in Mexico, northern Mexico, for two years, and he has an affinity for the Mexican people, um, a love, an incredible love for the people. So when somebody says, let's build a wall, um, that it impacts him because he's one of these bridge figures. And the reality of our existence is every one of you are bridge figures. The goal, I guess, would be take the role you know, seriously. Do you feel any connected need to the people or obligation to the people of Africa, of Nigeria? Do you feel any obligation there? Do you feel any obligation for a Syrian refugee? Well, I mean, no. You know, the United States can't be the babysitter for the world. Okay, well, don't give me the line. Give me the reality. Now, if I'm a betting man, you've probably never been to Nigeria. You've probably never experienced what it, what poverty might look like in another country and why people would do anything to get to this country. Because I'm going to bet if you just experienced it, you'd understand that the issue is a lot more complex than just people coming to America or fleeing a war-torn country. Uh, Same thing about religion and faith. Again, I have a deep respect for a lot of religion simply because I sat there and had people explain to me their religion. And so we all can be these bridge people. 
and language is incredible and culture, other people's culture, it is, it's edifying. So just ask yourself what you can do to bridge some of the gaps that exist in our culture and in our society. Can you just bridge the Democrat-Republican gap because you can understand both sides? We need some bridging going on. Uh, Anyway, a little challenge for all of us. We'll take a break. We're going to come back in about five or six minutes. Got a whole new show for you, folks. You're not going to want to miss it. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. 